Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We often limit the notion of graven or carved images of God as physical objects. But what about the images we carve in our mind that hinder our worship of God as God? Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series, The Ten Commandments, with this sermon entitled, Carved Images which covers Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at Perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Perimeter Church. Today's scripture reading comes from Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tom. Let's read together our prayer of illumination. Gracious God, reveal your holy, eternal word to us and introduce us to the knowledge of your will. Where we have erred, correct us. Where we are wounded, heal us. Where we are needy, fill us. Good shepherd, lead. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. Well, if you weren't with us last week, we began a new series in Exodus chapter 20 on the Ten Commandments. And this isn't necessarily a series that we just decided to do out of the blue, although it would be fine if we did to teach uh, through the Ten Commandments in this way. However, if you've been with us for a few years, you may remember that up until about a couple years ago, we were walking through the book of Exodus. And we walked through the first 19 chapters of the book of Exodus. And so uh, for a couple years and just seeking the Lord and trying to figure out what do you want us to teach and uh, where do you want us to lead, we took a break from Exodus to, to hit on some things over these last couple years that we felt like the Lord was leading in. But now we're coming back to it. And so we're picking back up in Exodus chapter 20, which leads us through these 10 commandments. Even those who have not been churched or in church are familiar with this uh, part of the Bible, at least by name. They've heard, every person probably has heard about the 10 commandments. And so as we think about these 10, they are the law of God. They sum up for us the totality of God's law. Jesus in the New Testament went even further to sum up all of the 10 commandments, the first table of the commandment and the second table in two ultimate commands, the, what we often call the great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the whole law. But here in the Ten Commandments, you have a little bit more expanded summation of all the law, all the law that is given throughout uh, the books of the Bible that, cons- uh, that, uh, that have the law for us. They are in the Ten Commandments. So naturally, what can happen for us is that we can see the Ten Commandments, we can approach the Ten Commandments as feeling like a heavy weight upon us, a burden upon us, because they're rules, they're commandments. We don't typically, the heart doesn't typically sing at rules and commandments. We don't go, yes, please give me more. I love that you give me rules. But one of the things that we have to see And this is why we titled the series this way. 
is that the Ten Commandments are actually expressing to us the heart of God. They're revealing to us this is what God loves. And because God loves us, and because this is what God loves, then it becomes clear to us, by way of logic, that we actually, humans actually flourish when we abide by these commandments. In other words, this is a bit of a, a guidebook, if you will, towards human flourishing. And so they reveal to us the heart of God. They show us what he is about, what he cares about deeply. And in so doing, we flourish in obedience to them. But there's another part of the law. Another part of the law is this. It exposes us. Yes, it exposes to us the heart of God, but it also exposes to us our own hearts. It reveals to us our sin. So in showing us the heart of God and showing what human flourishing looks like in terms of how we are to live, as Alistair Begg puts it, they are the pathway to freedom. We, we, we struggle to experience or taste of that freedom because ultimately we can't keep the law. In fact, we learn as we read through the scriptures and we learn in our daily lives by way of practice, we are incapable of keeping the law. We are incapable of fulfilling these commandments. So ultimately, the law does two things. God's commandments do two things. They show us the heart of God, but they also show us our heart, which means they show us our deep, desperate need for a Savior. Because again, we are completely incapable. So keep that in mind as we work our way through these Ten Commandments, what the nature of the law is. Ultimately, the law is good, but the law also condemns us because we can't do it. If I ended the sermon there, man, that would be a downer. There's, uh, there's hope to come. Stick with me. As I think about this second commandment in particular, though, this commandment that coming off the first commandment that Caleb led us through last week, that you shall have no other, no other gods before me, he then gets more specific into, well, in light of that, there shall be no carved images. You shall not make for yourself any carved image. And it would be really easy to think at that point, well, as I work my way through the Ten Commandments, we typically all approach them the same way, which is I'll put a little check mark next to the ones that I, I, I've got that one, okay? I'm not going to worry about that one. I'll move on to ones that I really struggle with. Well, here's a little tip. You're going to not need to put a check mark, mark by any of them because ultimately what God's wanting us to see in every single one of these commandments is not the behavior but the heart. This is what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount. He's pressing the law in beyond the behavior of it, which the Pharisees were only focused on, into the heart of it. So it'd be easy to look at the second commandment and go, well, I don't have any carved images in my house, so I'm good. But I want you to consider this as we think about this second commandment. I want you to consider Superman. That was a turn, right? What? What did he just say? Think about Superman. I grew up in the 80s, right? And this, the, the, the Superman movies of the late 70s and 80s, I, I love them. The Christopher Reeve ones, you know what I'm talking about? Don't go back and watch them. They'll ruin how you view them in your mind because they were so poorly acted and there was just horrible, horrible special effects. But the movies were great. And we know the Superman story well enough, even if you never saw the movies or any of the current ones, you just, I think you would know that the major tenet, one of the major uh, storylines of the movies and of the stories of the comics is this. It's that people don't realize that Clark Kent is Superman. And I'm not real sure why, all he does is put glasses on, but. <laughs> They don't, they don't see it, especially Lois Lane, right? 
And you go, Lois, how do you? <laughs> All he did was take his glasses off and slick his hair back. Come on, you know. But she doesn't. She doesn't see it. But eventually, as the story goes, she falls in love with Clark. She's already in love with Superman, but she falls in love with Clark eventually. And there's this point in the movie, in the movie series, where it's revealed to her that Clark is Superman. And she's shocked. And again, we're going, really? You're shocked at that? But she's shocked. And one way you could view that is, is maybe, this is me thinking too deeply about Superman, maybe part of her shock is uh, I have fallen in love with a lesser version of the real thing. Clark is not as great as Superman. And now in the story, that's a good thing. They go, you know, you don't have to have Superman. You can settle for Clark. But as we think about it in the context of how I'm presenting it here, do we not do the same thing all the time with God? We create images, if you will, of God, imaginations of what he's like that are actually less than the real thing. And we're content with those images of God. We worship them as such and we call them God, but they're not. Think about it this way. This is the way Jen Wilkin in her book, 10 Words to Live By, this is how she said it. She said, the first word or commandment prohibits worship of anything other than God. But the second prohibits worship of any version of God less than God, specifically through images. Anytime we take the attributes of the gods, the world around us worships and applies them, apply them to God to make him more palatable and less threatening, more accommodating and less thunderous, we produce a graven image. We whittle down his, transcend, his transcendence, we paint over his sovereignty, we chisel away his omnipotence until he is a pet-like version of the terrible pagan God we would never be so foolish as to bow down to. We diminish God, we lessen him, we make him more into our image than into his image, as it were. We, we, we want to make God like we want him. And in, do, in so doing, we're actually breaking the second commandment because we're crafting images of the mind of a God that actually doesn't exist. It's not the God of the Bible, not the real, true God. Westminster Larger Catechism says it this way, the second commandment forbids the making of any representation of God or all or any of the three persons of the Trinity, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever. So in other words, you, you begin to see hopefully that this is a lot deeper than I thought it was. It's not just about, well, I don't have figures of idols, carved images or, or shaped metal in my home or in my life that I bow down to, I'm good. No, no, this is in the mind and the heart as well, how we actually begin to worship versions of God that we have crafted and molded and carved, if you will, in our own way that aren't him. But we still worship him in that lessened state. Kevin DeYoung says it this way in his book, The Ten Commandments. He says, if the first commandment is against worshiping the wrong God, the second commandment is against worshiping God the wrong way. Here, here's the bottom line of this whole sermon. The, kind of the big picture idea of it is this. God is God. He is to be worshiped as he is, nothing less. 
And he is to be worshiped as he has commanded us to worship on his terms, not ours. God is God. He is to be worshiped as he is, nothing less. And he is is to be worshiped according to the way that he has commanded us to worship him. So I'm going to walk through this passage. And we're going to consider three things. The what, the why, and the hope. So the what is there for us in verse 4. It's, it's the commandment. It's, let's read it again. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So there's, there's two. In my, in my seeing of this, or the way I see this, there's two ways to apply this commandment. There's the first and foremost, the inward application, which I've already been alluding to. But there is an outward application, and I'll get to that. But let's start with the inward. The inward application. Let's consider what John Calvin said about our nature. This is what he said. You've heard this, many of you have heard this quote before. The human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual factory of idols. That's what he wrote in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. He continues and says this, the human mind, stuffed as it is with presumptuous rashness, dares to imagine a God suited to its own capacity. Don't miss that. As it labors under dullness, say, uh, nay, is sunk in the grossest ignorance, it substitutes vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God. Our minds are perpetual factories of idols. We will constantly generate and produce images of God in our minds that aren't consistent with who he really is. And therefore, as a result, there's all kinds of ways in which that affects us. We'll end up either worshiping a lesser version of God and being content with that, or we'll be mad at God because he's not what we want him to be when we fashioned him the wrong way all along. And so with that, let me see if I can help make this a little bit more tangible, a little bit more practical, because you may be tracking with me, but going, okay, so what does this look like? How do we do this in our hearts and our minds? So I'll give you five ways. There's way more than five. This is, this is certainly not exhaustive. But five common ways that we conceive of God in an untrue, uh, in, a, in a way untrue to who he is, and then worship him as, as such. So here's the first one. The first way that we can conceive of God in an untrue way is uh, God the cosmic cop. That he's just out to get us. Last night I was uh, driving on the, um, uh, the interstate to go pick up one of our children from a friend's house that she had gone to. And um, I passed a cop who had the best hiding place I've ever seen. Now, I feel so self-righteous to be able to say I was going the speed limit, (laughs) which isn't always the case, but I was. You know, I didn't pass going, oh, no, I'm caught, but I I just passed him, and I I thought, man, that's good. He was in a black car. It was super. There there, there weren't lights. You couldn't see him until you were right up on him, and I bet he caught a number of people, and I was thinking about this sermon as I continued driving, and I thought, you know what? I view God that way sometimes, that he's just hiding in the, in the bushes, kind of in the outcroppings of my life. He's just around the curve and he's just waiting for you to come speeding through. And then he's like, oh, yes. She messed up again and boom, pounce, right? And that's what we think of God, that that's his main purpose. His main purpose is to, is to you know, 
get us back in line. He's the cop just issuing tickets and telling us when to show up for the court date to plead our case. And, and you'll notice on the screen, I said that this is a low view of his love. When we see God as a cosmic cop, we, we struggle to see that God loves me. And not, not just in, in the way of an intellectual assent to say, I think if you're a Christian, all of us would say, yes, I agree with that. God loves me. But here's the, here's the question. The question is not, uh, do you think that and agree to it, but do you believe it? Do you believe God loves you? We tend to be a people who the way I see it in my mind, the way that it kind of always visualize it is when I'm struggling to believe God loves me, it's because I'm walking around like this and imagine that, that what's on the ground of my life as I walk are all the circumstances of my life, all the struggles of my life, all the things that tend to uh, scream at me that God doesn't love me. And the people that actually really do bask in the reality of the love of God are the ones through the power of the Spirit within them have learned over time to, yes, glance at those things, but stare at the cross. Because when we struggle to believe that God loves us, when we are believing that he's just a cosmic cop out to get us, what we're struggling with is we're struggling to believe the, the immensity of God's love represented and displayed for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because there is nothing ever in eternity past or eternity future that will scream to us so much louder than the circumstances of our lives that God loves us. We're the ones that deserve the wrath of God. We're the ones that, yes, do deserve to be treated like those who are breaking the law and God as the ultimate cop is coming down on us, but he doesn't pour out his wrath on us. He doesn't write us the ticket. He wrote it to Jesus who didn't deserve it, the only one who never broke the law. And he poured out his wrath on Jesus so that you and I could actually not only be forgiven and walk free, but receive the righteousness of Christ so that when he looks at us, he genuinely, fully, completely, immeasurably loves us and approves of us. Why? Because we're in Christ now. And he loves Jesus. And through Christ, he loves you and me more than we could ever imagine. When we carve images in our mind, in our imaginations of God as one who's just out to get us, we lose a vision of God of who he really is, is that God who loves us more than we could ever fathom. Another one is God, the benevolent grandfather. This is a low view of his power and his justice. When we see God, as some of us kind of picture God as just this, uh, this being somewhere out there that mimics more uh, an elderly man who is just so sweet in his rocking chair on his front porch. Can't wait for his grandkids to come and see him, but he can't get out of the chair. He's got no power. He can't really intervene or help with anything, but he'll give you some candy if you ask for it. And he loves you so much. But don't go to him with your problems. He's probably not going to be able to help. He'll give you a kiss and tell you he loves you. You know, this kind of thing is what we imagine with God. And for some of us, we need to do the opposite of those who struggle with God being the cosmic cop. Those who struggle with seeing that God really loves me don't have a problem with his power and his justice. But... But those who struggle with him being this, this loving, benevolent grandfather, we need to see, oh, God is, is strong and powerful. He is the strong tower that the Psalms speak of. 
He is the one who can crush anything and everything that he's created in a matter of a millisecond, not even with any action, but with the power of his word. We need to see that he is the God who, even if he's not intervening in your life circumstances right now, oh, he will one day. He will put all the things of the work of the enemy under his feet and he will crush the head of the serpent. He is God Almighty. Another one is God the faith healer. This is a low view of God's sovereignty. And yes, let me just please say, there is a major part of even what Jesus teaches and demonstrates for us that faith is important. I mean, he told people, your your faith has made you well. Right, so we do, we need faith. Faith of a mustard seed will move mountains, absolutely. We are to be a people of faith, but what, what do we do? We tend to take it a little too far, right? And we turn it less, we, we turn it more on us and less about God. In other words, we, we make it such that the weight of whether things happen in our life or not are based on me and my faith, not on God and his sovereignty and goodness. Does he wanna answer our prayers? Absolutely. Does he always answer our prayers according to how much we have prayed with faith for those things to happen? No, not always. Does that mean that we've done something wrong? I've prayed with all the faith that I could possibly pray that this person would be healed from the sickness and it didn't happen. God, you're not faithful. No, 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 no. You've taken a good teaching of Jesus that you would be filled with faith and you've put it on your ability to perform that faith and he never gave that to you. He never asked that of you. We have to be a people that understand, yes, this is a faith-driven life, but once we turn that into a performance-driven faith thing to where it says, I will ultimately get what I want in life if I have enough faith, then we have undermined the gospel of grace and we have undermined God's sovereignty. Not realizing that many times he gives us hard things on this earth because he has eternal purposes in mind, not just the here and now. Another one is um, God the distant father, which demonstrates a low view of his intimacy. Some of us grew up or or still have fathers that just were distant, emotionally absent. Maybe you grew up with a father who just wasn't there, period, physically absent. Those of us who are in that boat, uh, we might struggle with this one the most. Because we, we have experienced in our, in our lives a distant father and we appropriate that to God the Father. And so he's there, but we don't move towards him with intimacy. We don't think that he wants to know us and be near to us and be a father to the fatherless and embrace us and hold us. Last one is God, the landlord. (laughs) It's a low view of his care and provision. A little bit kind of like the cosmic cop, but, but with a twist because we're not necessarily believing that the landlord is out to get us, but we just want to keep him happy. You know, if you, if you get rent in on time, you got no issue with the landlord. So let's just make sure we always pay the bill. And if we do that, then the landlord won't be upset with us. Many of us actually approach this that way. We come to church not because we want to worship God and love God. We come to church because we're checking off the boxes so that rent's due on time. 
Well, he's got nothing against me, so because I've been doing everything I need to be doing. It's not, that's not what God wants from you. He wants your heart. He wants you. I'll tell you, I spent the first 25 years of my life struggling the most with the cosmic cop one. Absolutely convinced that because of sin in my life, God was out to get me. Every time I felt the way it manifested for me, mostly I've shared this with you before, was just in, in physical health things. I'd feel anything. I'd get a headache and go, well, it's a brain tumor. God's got me. I mean, I really, truly, I, I absolutely thought many times I was dying. And the underlying belief in that, of that fear, was because my sin is great and God has to punish me. Now, all the while, all the while, especially those first few years I was on staff with crew, I'm, I'm leading people to Jesus and I'm believing that God doesn't love me. That God's out to get me. So don't think for a minute that you can't be a mature Christian in the faith and not struggle with these things. As John Calvin said, he was talking about Christians. We are perpetual factory, factories of idols. So we have to be aware of this and understand what's going on here. Here's the outward application. Calvin continues and says this, to these evils another is added that the God whom man has thus conceived inwardly, he attempts to embody outwardly. The mind in this way conceives the idol and the hand gives birth to it. In other words, what he's saying is this, there are some of us. And you may be thinking, oh, this doesn't happen anymore. It does, it still does actually. Certainly throughout the world, but even here in America to some extent, maybe perhaps some of you and some of the traditions that you grew up in, this is something you're, you're having a hard time letting go, of and letting go of, and that's this, actual little things, something you put on the shelf, some type of actual carved physical thing that you think helps you worship God. We've been doing this from the beginning. Do, do you remember that um, the Israelites before Moses even got, got down off Mount Sinai from receiving the Ten Commandments, they had already broken the Second Commandment. Because while he was up there, they got antsy. They started believing all kinds of things, which we know is true of them throughout the story. Mimics us, actually. We mimic them, I guess is the better way to say it. But they got antsy. He's been up there too long. Never, never mind that God, we've just watched God lead us out of slavery, 400 years of slavery, uh, through all kinds of unreal miracles with the plagues and all kinds of stuff and the parting of the Red Sea and the pillar, pillar of fire and the cloud and all these things. But Moses has been up there too long and so we got to do something. And so they go to Aaron. They say, uh, craft something for us that we can worship. So in verse 4 of chapter 32, if you fast forward in the story, Moses hasn't even come down off the mountain yet, and this is what happens. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation. Do not miss this. Watch what he says here. He made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. Be a feast to the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Aaron was not thinking that he was creating another God to replace. He, he wasn't, there, there should be no other gods before me. I got that. I'm not creating another God in place of the one true God. I'm actually creating something that helps us worship God better. And he's breaking the second commandment. Because we don't need things to worship God better. Jesus is the one true mediator. We come to him and him alone. 
is the one who is the go-between, as it were, between us and God. We don't need other things, but there are Christian traditions right now that exist where we think that we need to kiss something or we need to anoint something or we need to have something that we bow down before, something that represents God, and that's a breaking of this commandment because we don't need those things. This is the way Kevin DeYoung says it uh, in, in the book that I alluded to earlier. He says the second commandment is not instructing us to get rid of all of our nativity sets and angel ornaments or artwork of the like, but it does mean that using pictures of icons to focus us in prayer, let alone kissing or kneeling before an image or statue, is misplaced. If we bow to the image, relic, or icon, or focus on it, or think we need it to be closer to God, it's a violation of the second commandment. Let me quote Wilkin again as well. She drew out something of this story that I just had not seen before. This is what she said. She says, have you ever wondered why Aaron chooses the image of a calf instead of some other animal? Like a bird or lion? Remember that Israel is in the in-between space, fresh from Egypt and heading to Canaan. One of the principal deities of Egypt was the bull god Apis, and the supreme head of the Canaanite pantheon was the bull god El. She says, bull worship was all the rage in the region. But it's a knobby-kneed calf, not a raging bull, that Aaron manufactures. When Aaron conceives of a Yahweh of his own imaging, don't miss this, he produces a non-threatening, approachable version of the principal gods of the surrounding pagans. And we do the same thing. We take the versions of God that we like that feel more approachable, more palatable. But they're not God. Why? Why would God give us a command like this? Simply put, he's a jealous God. Look what it says, verse 5 and 6. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. A few weeks ago in our teaching I shared with you, I said, you, you have to understand something that can feel a little complex and, and hard, but it's, it's so important for us to understand. And it's this, God is the only being in all of the universe who exists in such a way that it is appropriate, it's more than appropriate for him to be consumed with his own glory. If anyone else does it, then it's, it's arrogance, it's pride, self-righteousness, but it's actually appropriate and right that God is consumed with his own glory. He would be he would be inconsistent at best and lying to us at worst. If he said to us, your purpose of your existence is to be consumed with my glory. And in being consumed with my glory, you'll find your purpose and value and you'll enjoy me and your purpose of, of, of existence. But I don't do that with myself. I, I don't, I'm not consumed with my glory. That would be inconsistent at best, a lie at worst. He doesn't share his glory with anyone or anything, even fabricated images of himself. He is a jealous God and that is a good thing. Now what about this warning that truly sounds terrifying? <laughs> this warning in verses five and six where he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. It's important for us to note what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean, I'm convinced, it doesn't mean that it's, this is not a reference to generational curses 
or hexes or demonic possession over the course of generations. And it doesn't mean that a righteous child will be punished unfairly for the sins of their father. Take, for instance, for instance Ezekiel 18.20. Listen to what it says. It says, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. So that gives us clarity. That's not what this is talking about. So what is it talking about? It's simply this. This warning is about God's judgment on those, keyword, who walk in the same sins of their fathers. Who walk in the same sins as those who were before them, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, their mother, their father. And so therefore, those children who walk in the same way, they share in their fathers and their grandfathers and so forth's punishment. But in the first warning, don't miss the promise. In that warning, don't miss the promise. What's the promise? Well, but showing steadfast love to, to thousands of those who love me. Now, here comes the hard part. To thousands of those who love me, and keep my commandments. Whew. Kind of takes, takes the wind out of us, right? It's like, well, who of us has a chance? I, you, I say, I love God and I want him to, uh, I want to experience his steadfast love for the generations to come. I hope that my children would, would walk in the same way that I'm walking in love of God, but I struggle, I struggle to keep his commandments. I, it's a tall task that I can't keep. So here's the hope. We've hit the why, we've hit the what, here's the hope. The hope is this. God forbids making images because he's, he's the only one who can make images. He's already made images of himself, that's you and me. We're made in the image of God. And it's not so that you and I would worship one another, and it's not so that he certainly would worship us. It's, it's so that we would represent him in the world in such a way that we're reflecting the glory of God. Now, here, here's the problem. Sin came into the world, and so now that image of God in us is really tarnished. It's diminished in a significant way. So we need a new and better image. And so here's the hope. Here's the good news. There is one who's come who is the perfect image of God. Listen to how the scriptures say it even. Just tell us flat out who Jesus is. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1, 1-3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Listen, don't miss this. Tune in if you've tuned out. Listen, we don't have to run to imagined pictures of God. Why? We don't have to run to, to imagine pictures of God. Why? Because we don't have to imagine what God's like. We see it clearly in the person of Jesus revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. We don't have to run to an imaginary God because we have the real God in the flesh in Jesus laid out before us. That is, is uh, uh, Corinthians tells us that we see the glory of God where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Why do we not need the idols? Because we have the perfect image bearer. Why do we not need graven images? Because we have the perfect image bearer who says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. We don't need something that helps us worship God. We have God himself in Jesus. 
And he's the perfect mediator. He's the one who says, come to me and I will give you rest. Not just now, but for all of eternity. And he affirms, Jesus in his teaching affirms the second commandment. All the 10 commandments actually, but listen to this. He says in John 14, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He says it again a few verses later in just a little bit of a different way. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Now, here we are again, though, with a bit of a conundrum. We say, okay, I do love Jesus, but why do I struggle so much to keep his commandments? Well, we have to remember that as part of the hope of Christ is also the power of Christ. Because where is Jesus? Yes, he's ascended at the right hand of the Father, but where is his spirit? In us. If you believed upon Christ, his spirit indwells you and you have the power of Christ within you to actually do what you're incapable of doing apart from him. You cannot obey his commands, but with Christ in you, through his power, you can. Christ in you turns the table of our hearts, right? So when we don't know Jesus, we don't want to obey anything. Because the law is a burden over us. It's a weight upon us. It's duty. It's, it's not anything that we would crave. But when Jesus turns our heart and reminds us time and time again, I fulfilled the law. You're no longer under the weight of the law. The wrath of God is not upon you anymore. And I love you and I'm indwelling you and I am empowering you. Then therefore now we look at the law and we don't see it as burden, but beautiful. We don't see it as duty, but delight. We don't see it as a way to crush us. We see it as the way to the heart of God the pathway to freedom. Human flourishing exists in obedience to God, not apart from it. Galatians 2.20, this is the hope. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Christ says, if you're a follower of Jesus, believe upon him by faith, Christ indwells you and me. And through his power within us, out from underneath the curse of the law, the curse of the law, now in perfect union with the one who fulfilled the law, we actually begin to want to obey. We won't do it perfectly, but the desire changes. And we begin to learn a fresh new way of life. That obedience to God's commands, not to win his approval because we already have it, but obedience to God's commands is freedom. Why? Because to know Jesus is to be indwelt by Jesus. And to be indwelt by Jesus is to love his commands. He said it, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Many of us have experienced this to be true. I know how I have at many points along the way of my life, but the one that stands out the most, a lot of us have this story. The one that stands out the most to me is my freshman year of college. I did what a lot of college students do. I just ran from the Lord. I ran headlong into disobedience. Where did it lead me? It, lead me, it led me to uh, truly, I'm not just saying this because it sounds good for a good pastor story, but truly, it led me to misery. The summer after my freshman year, I woke up in the pig slop, so to speak, as Jesus talks about in the, in the parable. 
God opened my eyes to see that in this disobedience that I thought brought freedom in life, it was actually bringing me all the opposite. And he lifted my eyes out of looking this way up to seeing the cross and the beauty of Jesus. And he won my heart. And in winning my heart, he began to give me that desire to obey. I've watched a generation, I've watched a generation run from obedience because they're afraid of legalism. We're so, fra- we're so afraid of the law, legalism. I don't want to perform to try to earn my way to heaven. No, no, no. We're so afraid of that that we actually run away from obedience. So what I want you to hear, listen, stop throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Stop running from legalism and in so doing, actually not being a people who because of love for Jesus, we obey and find, find the freedom, the human flourishing that God has for us. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.